0: Live. Live from This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Oh! He broke his ankle. Follow me. Follow me with freedom. All ready for this? Here's your host, Mike Phillips. Mike
1: Phillips.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast. It's New York Sports Talk and One Suffering Fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Special second episode for you this week. We are already a couple of days after our big college football preview, plus the Sky Guys connect like to talk Bad Batch and Rebels on the podcast. Today, we're getting ready for the U.S. Open. It kicks off next week at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center in Flushing Meadows. we pursuing some history here. Novak Jokic going for the, the single-year calendar Grand Slam. Something has not been done by a man since Rod Laver in 1968. we be joined just a bit by Tennis Now's Chris Otto. We're going to dive deep into the U.S. Open, talk about Novak's chances, some of the big headliners on the men's side and the women's side, and more as well. Make sure you lock in the other show. We're going to do a special bonus pop culture spot this week with our resident film critic, the host of Stanko Stance, John Stanko. We're going to talk the, the fall movie season, which... It's more low than summer's here because of all the delays due to COVID. Talk about that. Some of his favorite fall movies, summer movies wrap up as well. That's going up the end of the show. But we're going start with this week's opening tip. Talk about the Yankees, the dramatic turnaround they've had, and the chances they have to really make some noise in October right after this.
1: Three,
0: two, one. Y'all ready for
1: this? The opening tip. <laughs> And here we
0: go. All right, opening tip time here. We're talking New York Yankee baseball. And I have to say, the turnaround we've seen out of the Bronx is absolutely remarkable. What the Yankees have managed to do in the span of about a month is mind boggling. I see you watch this team the first couple months of the year when they were inconsistent, blowing big lead after big lead after gut punch, after gut punch and playing inconsistent about firing Aaron Boone in June. Nothing seemed to go right for them. And they managed to flip the switch and playing some of the best baseball of the season. Think back not even that long ago from Dave recording exactly one month ago on July 25th, Yankees go to Boston, Lose 5-4. The Red Sox dropped 3 out of 4 on the, on the weekend. And at that point, looks like they're dead and buried in the American League. Wild card race. Talk about should the Yankees sell. Since that date, since that game, they went they fell at 51-47. and 47. They have picked up 23 wins and 5 losses in the next 28 games. That's the kind of stretch they need to not only get themselves out of the, the doldrums of the American League. They are now firmly in control of a spot in the wild-card race. They have the first wild-card right now by a couple of games over the Red Sox and the A's. Big credit to Brian Cashin for his work at the deadline. The moves of Joey Gallo, especially Anthony Rizzo, have done a big job energizing the Yankees and changing up that line a bit, giving it some balance, especially with Rizzo, a guy who you can't just power pitches by. You actually have to work to make catch him out. That approach has helped rub off some of the other guys who've all started to play better. And they've taken care of business. They have had some easy games. They have won them. That is not easy to do. just has the Mets, who have gagged away the National League East by failing to take advantage of games they should win. The Yankees, at this point, have won 11 games in a row as of for They are heading out west for a game against the Oakland A's, four-game series against the Oakland A's that is massive in the, in the standings here. You figure... The odds that maintaining this winning streak the whole way are tough. If you can split out there. You're in good shape because after that, look what's coming up for you guys. The Yankees you got the Angels. You have the Orioles, Toronto for four. The Mets who are falling apart. I make up with the Twins, the Orioles again, the Indians, Texas. There's a lot of runway here to rack up a lot of victories for the Yankees. This is the toughest series they have. They had two tough games in Atlanta. They won them both. They're at a phenomenal spot here, and I know Yankee fans are saying, oh, can we win the division now? Can we make a run to the American League East? I don't know if that's possible because Tampa is not the Red Sox here. The Red Sox had their own choke job. They blew ten and a half games to the standings of the Yankees in a span of about a month. Tampa has a much more consistent team. They're deeper. They take care of their own business. The schedule of Tampa Bay, looking ahead right now, I'm, I mean, this week they got the Orioles who, as everyone knows here, they've won one game in the month of August to this point. One. think they're going to do well in that series. They have a bunch of the Red Sox. They have the Twins. They have the Tigers. a a bunch the Blue Jays, Marlins, Astros, Yankees. This team will take care of its business. Especially if Boston is so slumping like the way they've been. I think the Yankees, your goal right now is take care of business, get that first wild card, and worry about having that game at Yankee Stadium against either Boston or Oakland. Because Toronto, I get they're talented, but they've been very inconsistent. They cannot get going for whatever reason. And I think they are likely to fade out here, especially George Springer getting hurt again. The Red Sox are an interesting spot here because, again, they have sort of fallen off the map here. They have some issues. They're getting... The Twins in here, which is good for them because they need a team they could beat up on, and the Twins are very, very bad. You know, they're losing this game tonight, but they have picked up a win in this series. They have games at the Indians and the Rays, the White Sox, Seattle, Baltimore, the Mets, Yankees, Orioles, and Nationals. There are some tough games in there, especially those games at Tampa. The White Sox is not easy. Going to Seattle is not easy. I think, for me, the team I'm worried about if i the Yankees is not the Red Sox at this point. Because the Red Sox don't have the kind of pitching to slow this lineup down. They have all these not going to mow down the Yankees anymore because they have the balance of Rizzo and Gallo. The difference here, I think Oakland is interesting. Because Oakland's a team that is making a charge in the American League West. They could win that division. Oakland has some very good pitching on its side. They have a talented lineup. And again, it's the one-game playoff that is scary because having your building helps. The Yankees did win a one-game playoff a couple of years ago against the A's. Remember, that was the day the A's side. We just got bullpen the whole playoff game. That didn't work out for them. But more pitching now will help. I think the question with the Yankees is just simple. We're getting in. We've gotten this point here. They have done enough where they played twenty-two game, 23 games over 500 for a month now. And they're going to rip off close to 93-94 90, wins and get in easily. Can they make the noise in the American League and end up getting the World Series after all? The AL is not that scary compared to the National League where you have the Giants and the Dodgers there and you have the Brewers with their three-headed pitching monster. The Yankees beat up the White Sox pretty bad. They won five out of six against them. One lost to the Felix Greens game, which is the last time the Yankees have lost as of recording. They're going out to Oakland on the 11-game winning streak. Houston, they've done pretty well against this year. I know Houston has a couple of wins against them, but this is a series that will be close. The team I would be worried about is Tampa because Tampa's had the Yankees number most of the year, most of the last two years. I think Tampa is probably the Yankees' biggest threat right now to the World Series, the way they're playing, although they would get them in the best of five if the Yankees go the wild card route. I have to double-check that, actually. I'm going to go to the standings right now here. In the American League... Playoff picture right now, yeah, they they would get Tampa because Tampa is the top team in the American League. The Yankees are the second-best record in the American League right now, close to it. They're right behind the White Sox and the Astros, which is pretty nuts if you think about it. But this turnaround the Yankees have had is remarkable. You give them credit. They have found a way to win. Unlike my team, miserable team, which keeps finding ways to lose baseball games and the West Coast stretch buried them where – as of recording this one, the Mets blew a 3-2 lead to the Giants. 2-1 lead to the Giants tonight, lost 3-2. They're 400-500, set out in the division. Playoff odds about 5%. And even with all those games against the Marlins and Nationals coming up, there's the hope. This team doesn't hit. They're done. Playoff baseball in New York for a while, we thought it was in Queens. It's going to be the Bronx again. That's something the Yankee fans be thrilled about. Mets fans, very disappointed. We will see what's going on here. We will see what's going on here. And watch this series of the Yankees, the A's this weekend. I think it's will be a lot of fun. These four games will be interesting to see because it's probably the best team they've played since the White Sox. On the road. Oakland team that's a little bit of a skid right now. I've lost four in a row heading to the series. See what happens here with the Yankees. See if they can find a way to sort of put some distance between themselves and Oakland. What's going on here? Up next, we're going to chat with Chris Otto of Tennis Now at the U.S. Open. I want to throw a little disclaimer out there before we get to the conversation. I talked to Chris Otto towards the end of last week. We did not have a firm grasp on the draw yet. Serena Williams, on the day I'm recording this, on Wednesday the 25th, she has pulled out of the U.S. Open, so she will not be there. The first question we talked to obviously not relevant, but the second one about her future left in there. I think is very interesting to get his take on that. But we'll get to that conversation right after this call from ESPN's Chris Fowler. Novak Djokic winning the Grand Slam at the Wimbledon earlier this summer. Again, he's entering the U.S. Open just one shy at the calendar year Grand Slam. He has Title number 20. One chase is over. He's caught. Roger and Rafa.
2: And now the Golden Grand Slam beckons.
0: All right. We are back here on the podcast talking some tennis here. A very big U.S. Open in store out of Flushing Meadows over the next two weeks. Joining me today, another guy who's just going to cover it for tennis now. Chris Otto is here. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Doing pretty good. I'm excited to see the tennis last this year. And last year was obviously odd because of COVID, no fans, and they had the bubble. But this year, it feels like it's more normal because you have the fans back there, and they can make a big difference this event. So what do you think it's going to mean to the players and the event to have the fans back?
1: Oh, it'll be massive for the players. I mean, it wasn't just the Open last year. That was without fans, and and of course, anybody who watched the 2020 U.S. Open knows what the atmosphere was like. Having Arthur Ashe Stadium with just two players and a bunch of cameramen is not the way you want to see Grand Slam tennis finish this season. Um, so that was tough. And really, since tennis restarted last year, and it restarted in New York as well in late August with the Cincinnati event being moved to New York, it's really been a year where players have been pretty much playing without fans or with diminished crowds, even all the way across Europe. Australia was good this year. They had fans, and we saw what the energy of a full crowd can do on Rod Laver Arena. It really boosts the players because, let's, let's be honest, they've, they've had a rough go of it. I mean, try traveling the globe during a pandemic for the last year, making about half as much income as they normally would. A lot of things have made it difficult for players, specifically guys like um, if you're looking at the South American players, of the Australian players, they've been on tour since tennis restarted for the whole season virtually without the chance to even go home. So just at least playing in front of Packed Arenas, having that New York energy is going to make a big difference. And I think, you know, you'll see an elevated level of tennis there.
0: Yeah, for sure. and Obviously, the big headline everyone's be watching here is Novak Djokovic's pursuit of history because he's won the first three slams of the year. He's going to try and win the career grand slam. I mean, not career grand slam, the single year grand slam. First time for a man since Rod Laver in 68, I believe. So what kind of pressure is he going to be under? Because he's got a lot of weight on his shoulders this year.
1: Yeah, big pressure for sure. Novak, of course, Novak Djokovic, world number one. Has been for a long time. He's pretty familiar with big-time pressure. He's got 20 major titles, just like Roger Federer and just like Rafael Nadal. But this, yes, as you hinted, is a little bit different because he is chasing the calendar year Grand Slam, which hasn't been achieved by a man since 1969, Rod Laver. It's a great Rod Laver. So um, it's a lot of pressure, and I think we saw that pressure build up a little bit in the Olympics because Djokovic was also trying to win the Olympic gold, which would have made him the first winner of the gold meaning all four grand slams and the gold medal since Steffi Graf in 88. Um, and I think it wasn't so much the pressure that hurt him in that tournament, but it was the fatigue for all he's been through. I mean, he had a really rough grind in Paris at Roland Garros, which ended in June and just two weeks break before Wimbledon, which he was able to win, uh, put a lot of energy both mentally and physically into winning those titles and to winning the first three grand slam titles of the season. And now he's at a place where he's really chasing a record that would set him apart, not just from other tennis players, but from his two rivals. Because Federer and Nadal have neither even come close to winning a calendar year Grand Slam. And if he's able to do this, it would do wonders for his legacy. The question is, he goes in as the heavy favorite. The question is, maybe not so much the pressure as you alluded to, but I would say how fresh is he going to be? How fit is he going to feel physically? Because everybody's going to be gunning for him in New York.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. And you mentioned his run in Tokyo where he was going for the Golden Slam. He loses in the semifinals to Sasha Zverev there. And you could tell he's very disappointed. And it took a lot out of him. He skipped a couple of his tune-up events for the U.S. Open. So do you think the what happened to him in Tokyo, I think that's going to be good for him in the sense that, hey, I got a loss. I always have a little less pressure. I would have if I had won the gold and was going for the Golden Slam. Or do you think it's something that could linger into the event for him?
1: I think it'll be good for him. I think it'll, I think it showed him what the most important thing, the key to success for him is, and that was resting. And I think that's why he took the rather drastic decision to skip the two Masters events in Canada and Cincinnati, which is, it's the first time Eleva played the U.S. Open without playing those two events in his career. And I think it was a great decision for him because at 34 years old, the number one most important thing for him is to be fresh and to be motivated and I think he needed that time off, the time that he's currently taking off. I'm sure he's working hard wherever he is, but I think he needed the time to be fresh and that's going to be the key to success for him. Being injury-free, we've seen injuries like um, derail him at the US Open before and being fresh. So I like the decision. Yeah, it's a bit of a gamble. He won't be able to say he's coming in in top form because he hasn't played and he's coming off those disappointing losses at the Olympics, but... I think he knows what he needs to do, and I get the feeling he's going to be able to get it done if he's fresh, like he hopes he is.
0: Yeah, obviously, one more Novak question. General it was like last year. People may have forgot about this. It like it's so long ago in the COVID times. Is like he came to the US so much. Because he the only one of the big three to do it. and He ends up leaving on a very odd situation where he defaults because he gets mad, hits the ball, and ends up striking the Lions woman in the throat, and then he gets to- basically tossed in the tournament. So, how do you think that's going to like weigh in on him as he goes for this year?
1: I get the feeling that that's behind him now that was a that was a really unfortunate incident as anybody who saw it knows i mean he was the heavy favorite at the us open it looked like he was going to kind of march to that title unimpeded and what happened was just so unfortunate and, and it was a part of a really difficult phase of the year for him because of course he got in a little bit of trouble having holding a charity event in belgrade during the summer when the when the coronavirus was still a big threat and a lot of players got tested positive over there. He was taking a lot of heat from the media and I think this exacerbated those problems. But I think a year on it's really not an issue anymore. I think he'll get pretty good crowd support in New York and I think it's behind him and I think he's learned a lot from it. So uh, I I don't see it being a factor at all. Yeah, that would be interesting to
0: see here. One thing i will help Matt here is that the other the two big guys not going to be there. We learned this morning on day recording that Rafael Nadal is skipping the rest of the year because he has an injury. Same for Roger Federer, who has to go another, undergo another surgery here. The question with Federer, obviously, because he's much older than either of the other two guys is, is this it for him? Do you think we've, he's going to make another comeback? Because I feel like as he gets older, all these injuries keep mounting, It's going to be hard for him to get up here and play the kind of tennis he's capable of.
1: Yeah, I mean... If you say, is this it for him? It's a question of are you talking about, is he ever going to take the court again? To that question, I would answer no. I think he's going to be back. I think he's going to like make another run once he gets his knee surgery, which I don't think is a very serious knee surgery that he needs. I think it's kind of a tweak, and I think he's got some experience with rehabbing. I expect it'll come back and play a handful of events and do a bit of a farewell perhaps next year, maybe like a, something like a Wimbledon the U.S. Open, and then maybe even finish his career in Basel at his, at his home court in, in the fall. And uh, Is he going to be a threat at the majors anymore? I don't see it. I, I don't see it at this point. However, I never count him out. Perhaps if he really comes back and feels great for this South, he can, he can do damage at Wimbledon. I mean, he did okay this year in terrible form. He reached the quarterfinals, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it. So I don't think it's the end of his career, but it's darn close.
0: Yeah, and since he and Nadal are not going to be at the U.S. Open, who do you think is the biggest threat to Novak completing the slant there? Is it Dominic Team who won last year or somebody else? Who do you think are the big threats to him at the U.S. Open?
1: Well, First of all, Team is also out with an injury, with a wrist injury. He just cut cut his 2021 season short either, so it's been a tough time for injuries with the Nadal pulling out today, as you mentioned, with a foot injury. No Federer, no Team, who's the defending champ, so that's re- crazy. But as you say, there are a lot of people that can do some damage in, in the end field. I can name a bunch of numbers, but at first I would say the biggest threat to Jokovic's is crown is him being fresh and being healthy. So he's his own worst enemy here. Um, He needs to be fresh and healthy and positive. And if he can't do that, then I think he's going to be open target for a lot of players, starting with the Russians. Daniel Medvedev, a finalist in 2019, has three career wins against Djokovic playing great right now. He'll be in the quarterfinals at Cincinnati today. Just won a master's 1000 title in Canada last week. Alexander Zverev, the Olympic gold medalist, has three career wins over Djokovic. None at the slams, however. Um, I think he's a big threat. I think he's a rising force, and uh, he's going to have his time on tour, probably win some majors. And then you got other names like Stefano Sistipas, the Greek, owns a couple career wins over Djokovic, playing pretty solid tennis. He'll be in the quarterfinals in Cincinnati today as well. Andre Rublev of Russia is a guy who's made two U.S. Open quarterfinals. There are a lot of young players the, on the men's tour that are cutting their teeth and learning to win, but here's the thing. Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, guys I mentioned that have wins against Djokovic, they all do, but none of them has ever beaten the number one at the slams. So that's the that's the challenge that they're up against. Can they get that big win against Djokovic at the slams? None of these guys have been, have been able to do it so far, so it'll be interesting to see if they have what it takes to do it this year.
0: Yeah, for sure. And one thing, I mean, obviously we're recording before the draw is released next week, so the thing I'm always curious about with this is obviously the – Possibly how the young Americans can do on the men's side because I mean, apart from Andy Roddick and John there's not much of a presence in the top ten for the men in deck in at least two decades. So this is, this draw that some of these big guns has a, sort of the of opportunity for some of these young guys. Like, do you see any young Americans who you think could make some noise on the men's side this year?
1: I do, I do actually. I, um, this is maybe the best I've felt about American men's tennis in several years, and that's because we've got four guys, twenty-four and under, that have been kind of. Growing into the into their game on the tour have have not really reached top twenty rankings, but are all good. That's riley opelka, the the bomb server who's made his first master's one thousand final in Canada last week. We've got Taylor Fritz, Francis Tiafo. Guys are really solid players um, and kind of steadily rising up the rankings. But the guys that most people are really excited about is Sebastian. Um, son of uh, former World number no. 2 and former Grand Slam champion Peter Corda. He's been a rising force on tour for, I'd say, a year now. He entered Roland Garros, which was played in the fall last year because of the pandemic, outside of the top 200. Now he's inside the top 50. He's the first guy since 1986 to make the second week of Roland Garros and Wimbledon on his debut, so he's, he hasn't needed much time to step it up at the Grand Slam level even at a very young age. He's a player that has a lot of talent and the potential to do some damage. I don't think he can win this tournament, but I think he can have a great experience, possibly also make the second week. There's also a couple of Americans that I've been watching this summer that have done really good stuff. Jensen Brooksby, a player who played a... um, He reached his first ATV final this season. He's a guy who was... Kind of a threat in the juniors. He's been at the U.S. Open before, but he's he's only 20 years of age. He's not a people. He's not a, certainly not a household name at this point, but he's a guy that looks like he might have a really bright future. And also, Brandon Nakashima um, reached back-to-back finals this summer on tour. He had with a really well-rounded game. He's just inside the top 100, like Brooksby. These two guys just got inside the top 100, so we're not expecting them to do serious damage. At the U.S. Open, but we think maybe, you know, third round, potentially second week, they're both getting wild cards into the Open so they could face a, a high seed in the early round. So it's tough to say, but these guys are really worth it to keep an eye on and be excited about. I think three, four years down the road, they they we could have a couple Americans in the top ten, and that's something that we haven't seen for a long time.
0: Yeah, that'd definitely be exciting. I want to shift to the women's side for a little bit as well. We have the entry the with the reigning champ, Naomi Osaka, who obviously has made headlines off the court for her stance on trying to promote mental health and pulling out of the French open because of media obligation concerns, pulling out Wimbledon. She wins the Olympics, bounces out early. What do you think of her chances here of trying to deal with the repeat? I feel like she could be under a ton of pressure because the media here in, in New York, as you know, is not like a big, is not afraid to make a big deal out of things.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Well, she's got a bit of a mountain to climb, right? Because You know, the mental health issues that you talked about that forced her to pull out of Roland Garros, and that was in early June. She hadn't played, really, until she showed up at the Olympics, and, of course, she was uh, the woman who lit the cauldron at the Tokyo Olympics, first tennis player to ever do that. She was pretty much the face of the Olympic Games. So, I mean, she's used to the pressure, but as she's not having the greatest time with it. She does have the mental health issues that you talked about. I think she's played two events in the last... um, Tokyo, and she played in Cincinnati last week. She just lost last night, as a matter of fact. Um, a bit of a surprising loss, but I think those two performances at least got her to dip her toes back into the game. She's a little bit more comfortable playing. She's great on the hard courts. She's a defending champ. I think even this year has been a bit of a mess for her with the issues we're talking about. She's still 15-3 and three on hard courts this year. She still is a four-time Grand Slam champion and probably one of the best players in the draw i think what's going to hold her back is that she just does not have played a lot of tennis and she's not really confident in her game this year so i think she's more vulnerable than she'd like to be it's kind of hard to imagine her winning this title It'd be remarkable if she does to be honest but you have to be in there considering her a threat to win it because she is a defending champ and she is a two-time champ as a matter of fact
0: yeah, for sure. And obviously the name of most interesting Americans is Serena Williams, who has not played much because she's had an, in- an injury issue. She skipped the Olympics. She We don't know as of recording time if she's actually going to make the draw for the US Open. I know she's been up in the air about it, but if she does play, she's always a threat, and she's been trying to chase that 24th slam of time Margaret court for a couple of years. Now she's come close, lost a bunch of finals. If she does yeah. enter the draw, do you think she has a shot here to make that run?
1: I do, it, but you know, it's... Going to depend on her health and, and what she's been able to do since leaving Wimbledon. She 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 had to retire with an injury from the in the first round at Wimbledon. That was incredibly disappointing because that was the tournament that many were targeting as the one that she could win because the grass favors her her game. The U.S. Open is another one where she could have a good shot, um, but the health is a huge issue. disappointing because Serena started the year really well. She had her best performance at the Australian Open since 2017. Made the semifinals. Since then, things have kind of fallen apart Round of 16 loss at Roland Garros and then the first round loss due to injury at Wimbledon. It's going to be really tough for her with um, 39 years old, pushing 40. She'll turn 40 in September. Um, Let's hope she's fit. Let's hope she gives it a go. Another thing working against Serena will be the fact that she's going to be seated outside the top 16. So that draw you mentioned might be even a little tougher than usual for her. Um she has a probably, I would say, an even bigger mountain to climb than Naomi Osaka does.
0: Yeah, for sure. And has she, has she given any hint? I mean, I'm not paying as much attention to it. she given any hint to how much longer she wants to keep playing? Because, again, like she's very successful. She has a lot of things she could do outside of tennis she wants. Has she given a hint about how much longer she's willing to keep playing?
1: No, you don't hear much. Mom's pretty much the word. I think she said she'll let us know when, when it's time. So I guess we just have to wait and see. But you have to think with her turning 40, there's not going to be many more opportunities i mean in my mind's eye, I'm thinking perhaps another season another few few more goes at this twenty fourth major and it's it's uh it's it's disappointing because, like you said, she had the four Grand Slam finals over the last four years that she's made hasn't able been able to break through so it's um you know, you just have to cross your fingers and then hope she can make a run at it. I, I think if she does get healthy, as mentioned, she'll have a shot this year. And then let's hope that we get to see her a little bit next year. I think a lot of these players want to finish their careers on their terms and maybe get back into the game at 2022 when there's going to be packed arenas and COVID will be as much of a factor. I don't think they want to do it. This has been a tough time for all players. And I think some of those big stars like Serena and Roger Federer certainly don't want to call it quits this year.
0: Yeah, I can understand that. And speaking of somebody who's got a nice, long career ahead of them, Coco Galve, obviously, the other big name here because she goes, she was going to go to the Olympics, got, got COVID, couldn't go. Disappointing for her. She's made decent runs at the, pretty much each of the slams she's entered since she started a couple of years ago and made that big run at Wimbledon. So what do you think about Coco Galve's chances here? Like, Do you think she could be a factor here?
1: I think she could. I think um, you know, reaching the quarterfinals at Roland Garros was a big step for her. Like, you know, like you mentioned, she's only 17. I mean, she's the youngest player, not only in the top 50, but the top 300. I mean, she's an incredible talent. I think really, we just need to have a little patience with her and let her grow her game. Absolutely. She can be a factor. The women's draw, I think is, you know, typically a little bit more wide open and, you know, open to surprises because of that. Um, Even her losses have been good in this season. Um, You know, she's Grown quite a bit, and is knocking on the door of the top twenty. She's still got some kinks in her game that she's working out. She'd like to have a better second serve. Her forehand can go awry here and there, but she's really motivated and and really, really embracing the the fact that she's gaining experience on the tour. And um, I really like the progress she's made this year. She hasn't, you know, put up any mind blowing results, but you have to think, you have to take a step back and realize that she's seventeen. And she will be for another six months. Um, so yeah, like you say, one to watch at the Open. Be interesting to see how her draw shapes up. And yes, yeah, she can do some damage. Perhaps, perhaps even reach you know another quarterfinal, another semifinal. And once you get there, um, you know the potential to to, to see, steal away with a title is there for her. I don't expect it personally. But yeah, I mean, I mean, she, you know, every event, every big event like this for Coco Golf is another event to grow. And I think if she looks at it that way, reduces the pressure a bit, it'll, it'll enable her to put her uh, best tennis forward. Yeah, for sure. We've talked about the, probably the three names i are most
0: familiar the casual audience here in Osaka, Serena, and, and Coco Golf. So who are some other contenders on the women's side you think could make some real noise here?
1: You got the world number one, Ashley Barty of Australia is off the winning the Wimbledon title. Had a disappointing performance at the Olympics, maybe due to fatigue, much like Djokovic's, but um, having an incredible season. 13-1 and one against the top 20 in 2021. Just blasted past uh, last year's U.S. Open runner-up, Victoria Azarenka, yesterday in Cincinnati. So Ash Barty is definitely a threat to win the title. Irina Sabalenka, um, if you look at the rankings, she's number three, but she's number two in the race, which is more like the up-to-date 52 52- Weak rankings from the beginning of the season. So really, she's had the second best results on tour this season. Had a breakout at Wimbledon, reaching the semifinal. I think she's a player that could potentially win her first major at this U.S. Open. Uh, Babura Krejcikova, a tough, tough one to pronounce—but am um, the Czech won Roland Garros. Um, she's kind of a really come from out of nowhere in the last season and a half to become one of the most consistent, steady players in the game. Not a household name, certainly not in the United States, but recently reached the top ten and, and won her first major title this year. She's a talented one. I could go on with these names because in the in the women's draw it's depth and there's a lot of talent. There's Carolina Pliskova reached the Wimbledon final playing good tennis on hard court. Anjali Kerber um three-time Grand Slam champion, sort of like having a, a real surge later in her career after a couple disappointing seasons, reached the semis at Wimbledon looking good again this summer. And there's, of course, Belinda Bencic, the Olympic gold medal winner. Um, we've seen it before where players come off winning the Olympic gold and just kind of crack at another level in their career. So that's a good reason to keep an eye on Bencic in New York and also to keep on uh, an eye on Alexander Zverev, the gold medal winner on the... On the um, on the men's side, interesting, in 2012, Andy Murray had never won a Grand Slam. In fact, he had lost his first four Grand Slam finals, but he won the gold medal that year, at, and which was played at Wimbledon, and then a month later, he won his first major title at the U.S. Open. So that whole Olympic connection is, will be one of the storylines we're watching at the U.S. Open.
0: Absolutely, and obviously, we're still a ways away from the actual Open on, on the record date, so asking your Winnipeg's is tough. I'm not going to do that. We don't even have the draw yet, but like... What story alongside the, the audience about Novak going for the Grand Slam? Serene, what are you looking forward to watching at Flushing Meadows
1: over the fortnight? Well, you know, we hit on them all, I think. I mean, let's, I cannot under, you know, I cannot hype enough the importance of Novak Djokovic going for the calendar slam. It's, it hasn't been done in over 50 years for a man. It would just be ridiculous because not only is Djokovic chasing that calendar slam, he's also chasing a 21st major title, which would for the first time put him ahead both of Federer and Nadal and Grand Slam titles, won so all eyes on Djokovic. It's going to be it's going to be absolute bedlam as he gets into the second week. The pressure is going to be crazy. The the crowds will again be back in New York, and um, you know Djokovic polarizing figure. A lot of people love him, but some of the the loyal supporters of Federer and Nadal don't love him so much. So it'll be a really interesting atmosphere. I mean, we talked about Osaka. It'd be crazy to see how she does with all the issues she comes into this season with the mental health issues, with the lack of playing time, defending a title. Um, she's a very popular um, figure as well, so it'll be fun to watch her. And then that, was that Olympic storyline is about as big. It'll be cool to see how the gold medalist can perform. And if indeed if there's any truth to the belief that winning Olympic gold kind of hit another level. And then there's just um, players that that we talked about that could possibly challenge Djokovic definitely watching guys like Daniel Medvedev Alexander Zverev Stefano Tsitsipas rising young players that have been rising you know for the last two three years it'll be really interesting to see if they can take a next step and kind of try to take a crack at taking Djokovic down which he would think he's a little more vulnerable potentially due to fatigue than he was maybe at the earlier in the season when he was winning the title at the Australian Open per se so yeah I mean there's so much to look for and then there's of course just the overall fact that there'll be a packed house in New York with a pandemic still very much a factor in all of our lives it'll be interesting to see how the tournament can kind of handle the situation if there won't be any speed bumps along the way if everybody's safe and any positive tests and that kind of stuff. I mean, there'll be plenty to keep
0: an eye on, right? Oh, for sure. And the thing I'm also fascinated you brought up here is like the crowd with Novak, because I know there are times he's gotten the final here against like players like Federer and Nadal, where the crowd clearly rooting against him in, the, in those finals. So you wonder like if those guys are not there and he's chasing history is the crowd for him or is the crowd rooting for him to fail?
1: I think you'll see a mix. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, that the most notable would be the final against Federer, which I think was 20. 20- Fifteen, that was the most pro-Federa crowd I think I've ever seen. Now, Roger's not there. Rafa's not there, too. um perennial crowd favorites. So I think you'll see a bit of a mix, just like we saw in the last Packed Houses of 2019, where we saw Medvedev, who gained popularity quite a bit that season because, uh, because of his antics in New York. And he's just one of those crazy characters that the New York crowd eventually warmed up to after kind of initially sort of being against. So I think you'll see pockets of, of crazy fans for both sides. I think it'll be a really cool and a really fair atmosphere.
0: Absolutely. Looking forward to this tournament, Chris. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, it'll be a social media. Keep up your coverage of the event and tennis in general.
1: Oh, um, you can, you can find me on Twitter at the fan child. I'm usually trying to tweet when I'm not working too hard. I'll also be writing for USopen.org, tennisnow.com and tennis majors.
0: All right, that sounds good, Chris. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Have fun and enjoy the tournament. Hey,
1: great to chat, Mike.
0: All right, we are officially closing out the summer movie season here on the podcast and back with me, as always, talk some movies, our podcast resident film critic, the host of the Stanko Stance podcast. You can also check him out at stankostance.com. John Stanko is back with us. John, how are you? Mike, I'm doing fantastic this evening. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. i have rather be talking right you than I'm watching both of our ch- uh, choking baseball teams here down the stretch.
2: I literally have the Red Sox on in the background. It's a painful experience going into to work in New York city. Every day it is painful.
0: Hey, it, but, I mean, that's a little bit, at least you guys are still in shouting. This is the playoffs here. My team was in first for 90 days. It's completely fallen off the map.
2: Yeah. Your team is completely out. At least we're still in the playoffs. And right now we're going to play the Yankees in the wild card game. If that's the case, which would be utterly disastrous for my health. <laughs> so I hope that doesn't stand pat uh, though. Odds are that's the only thing that's going to happen. So we just got to keep ourselves afloat.
0: Yeah, a phone got thrown before this before this call got started because Luis Ross made like bone like a bone my head scratching decision here, and it ended up costing the Mets immediately.
2: So I I was on Twitter while I was waiting for you, and I saw every single Met fan I know cursing the heavens. So I I'm sure it was incredibly frustrating.
0: It was very frustrating. Let's get something that's not frustrating, which is the movies, because star movie season is not as. Sh- jam-packed as it usually is because of COVID. Some stuff got pushed back, but I still think there's a lot here this summer to enjoy.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it depends if you're willing to pay $30 to rent a movie uh, in these premium passes like Disney Plus especially. Um, but I think HBO Max is the best summer program with having the mutual in theaters release and then also on the app. And there were some good movies, there were some surprises, there were some disappointments, but overall, movies were back this summer compared to last summer when nothing new came out at all. So it's a step in the right direction.
0: All right. So quickly, you need the Stanko top five from this summer. So what were the top five best things
2: you saw this summer? Uh, So honestly, the best thing that I saw this summer was a documentary on HBO Max, Woodstock 99. And don't know if you've heard of it or had the chance to check it out. But it's a, it's a documentary following the tales of Woodstock 99 and the utter disaster that it was and the horror movie that ensued in upstate New York. Absolutely insane stuff. One of the best documentaries I've seen in a really long time. Since I've seen Boy State, it's the best documentary since Boy State for me. Um, number two, Suicide Squad, which you saw and I know a lot of people have talked about and I enjoyed very, very much. I uh, was worried about James Gunn because I'm not a huge fan of Guardians of the Galaxy, but... I love Suicide Squad for the most part. I thought uh, I thought many of the characters were excellent. Some of the characters people loved, I didn't. But I love John Cena. I thought he was incredible. I thought Edith's elbow was great. Love Suicide Squad. And then I'm cheating for my third pick, Mike. I'm cheating a little bit, just a smidge. Hope you're ready for this. I'm going with the Fear Street trilogy as a whole. Because that's three movies. That would make five total. And this was the best surprise of the summer. Because I saw Fear Street trilogy coming out. I was like, oh, Netflix horror movies, I always watch them. They're always decent. These movies were legit good. And the third one was, like, borderline excellent. I had a phenomenal time. So I love the Fear Street movies. So those three are filling in my top five because of the, the surprise factor that the fact Netflix put out above-par horror movie. Like, it, was, they were actually very, very good.
0: Yeah, I I love those movies as well. Suicide Squad, R.I.P. Polka Dot Man. I loved him. He was a fun character. Yeah, I didn't
2: he... like Polka Dot Man. I don't I, – didn't like Pokemon Man. That's I'm the biggest detractor in that.
0: Yeah, yeah. For me, I, th- I thought the bit also where every villain he was just seeing his
2: mom was was just so funny. I hated that. You could I do know. it once. Don't do it six times. Yeah, I did not like that. Me and you are just different. We have different forms of the comedy. There, we just wasn't a fan.
0: Yeah, I like those as well. I also thought A Quiet Place Part Two was underrated. I did enjoy that, and in in the Heights was fun.
2: I have not seen those last two, so I cannot comment on those.
0: Yeah, I think so, the yeah, that was well. And also Black Widow came out with eh movie compared to some of the other stuff I saw this summer. But the big thing coming out of that was obviously the lawsuit from Scarlett Johansson suing Disney and Marvel for the fact that she said, Hey, like, this violates my contract because you put this on Disney Plus and it cost the movie the Black Widow's receipts is, is what I get paid on. So what do you think about that lawsuit? Do you think it's gonna impact more stuff like going on the stream while going forward?
2: Do I think it's gonna impact stuff? Yes. Am I smart enough to know how exactly? No, I do think it's very interesting. You have a huge movie star versus a huge movie studio. And I don't think ScarJo is going to win this lawsuit, but I think her fighting the lawsuit is more important than her actually winning. Does that make sense? Yeah, I feel she's like stepping up to the man, if you will.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's all, she's a little bit like the putting a baseball parlance, like Kurt Flood suing to get free agency with the players. He didn't actually get it, but he, his lawsuit sets stuff up for everybody else.
2: Yes. Now, like I think Disney, from what I've read, like they just, it was like a handshake agreement with ScarJo that they were going to release it in theaters, not on Disney Plus, because that was like a, that was like the handshake agreement. It wasn't written in the contract that that would be the case. And like Disney brought up the point that they surpassed the minimum amount of theaters that were necessary to put. Uh, to put this movie in. I think it was like 1,500 theaters was the minimum, and they got over 9,000 in the country. So Disney did put it in more than enough theaters that was written in the contract. Do I think ScarJo has the right to be pissed off? Absolutely. She lost a ton of money on this, but still, Black Widow did incredibly well compared to other movies. I already think I had bigger box office than any of the Ant-Man movies did uh, in, their freaking, in their opening weekends and stuff like that. So I think she has a right to be pissed, but I think this is going to set a precedent for things to change in the years going forward and the way contracts are written. But Mike, we never see the contracts that are written, right? We only kind of get, maybe get a guesstimate of how much dollars each star is making, but maybe these contracts become more transparent. Maybe there's new language that's developed, but it's going to have lasting effects. And ScarJo was the first one to kind of, Take the gun and shoot at at the big giant that is Disney. And that is major motion pictures.
0: Yeah, definitely a track. I feel like it's definitely something we're we'll going to see going forward. We'll see sort of like these streaming claws written into movie contracts going forward. I also think the other thing to watch here is the lingering effects of COVID on the movie industry, because obviously Delta's ripping through the country. We've seen some movies get shifted already. We saw Venom get pushed back by Sony. There's rumors some other stuff could get pushed back. Do you think there's anything major here to get pushed back by Delta? You think a lot of we have in the fall is gonna stay where it is.
2: I think I think the fall is going to stay where it is for the most part because I think studios are becoming more and more. I don't know if okay. I, I how do I get to phrase this? Studios are becoming more accustomed to the idea of releasing at home, streaming, and in theaters at the same time simultaneously. Do I think studios and the people involved and the directors are okay with it? No, not necessarily. Do I think that they're learning that this is now a prerequisite to have any sort of profit during this climate? Yes, I think that is the case. So I, I think it's really interesting. Like, for instance, a movie, No Time to Die, has been delayed five times already. They can't afford to move that movie anymore. It was $250 million budget before uh, its five reschedulings back when it was first to be released last March, March 2020. They don't have enough money to do a whole marketing campaign again. And you can't delay a franchise like that. It's been six years already since Bond came out. So I don't think there's going to be a lot more changes. I think there might be a lot more shifting of platforms. But in terms of movies being moved back an entire year, I just don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah. Because this is all about the money, Mike. And the more you delay it, the more you take away from the, the fervor around certain movies and there's going to be less money at the box office. It's all about the money. It's the same thing with the Scar- ScarJo uh, contract dispute as well with Disney. It always comes back down to the money.
0: Yeah, I just say like all the delays, I feel like this fall slate is loaded compared to the month of October,
2: Mike. Oh, my God. It's so good. It's unbelievably good.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically that period, we're covering basically from September through December. So I feel like that October, November swing is so much more low than usually is because of all the delays. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, it's going to be great. And I, again, not every director is happy about it. Like uh, Denise Villeneuve, director of Dune, he is straight up pissed that HBO Max is going to be releasing his movie on HBO Max too at the same time. But it, he, it's like, it's necessary evil. I don't like it. Everyone he's telling, he's saying, go watch it in theaters. But people are going to, more people are going to watch it at home than in theaters. So it's a necessary evil right now. Now this evil may be in place forever, like it feels COVID might. But as of right now, I don't think it's going to change the status quo.
0: All right, let's go to some specific stuff here. Let's start off with the, not the big Marvel one, the two other ones, the Shang-Chi and the Eternals here. I know you're a bit of a Marvel hiatus a little bit. You started taking a a nice break to get yourself back into it eventually, but which of these do you think will do better with the general audience? Because they had two very new properties to the Marvel casual.
2: I think between Shang-Chi and Eternals, I think Eternals is going to have more fanfare for the general public. Just because you look at the cast of this movie, Unbelievable amount of recognizable names. You got Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, Richard Madden, Kit Harington, Kamal Johnny, Tons of individual names, right? That just star power galore. Um, I think with Chang Chi might have more global um, success, just because. Listen, it's about it's about an Asian hero. You're going to tackle that audience in China, and they're going to make a crap ton of money. So. I think in terms of the global aspect, Shang-Chi may be more popular, but within the U.S. it's going to be the Eternals. And I think in terms of the Marvel Universe setup, I think Eternals is more interesting because I think it's going to set up more broader and um, broader umbrella problems for the Marvel Universe to deal with, whether it be like the Deviants or the big bad guys. But the fact is Eternals are gods, so it's, they're going to have a big problem on their hand, which is probably going to funnel down to the regular heroes that we're going to be dealing with within this next phase. So that's why I think Eternals is eventually going to have a lot more popularity.
0: Yeah. I could see that too. I also think that movie I'm intrigued by, I like Shang Chi. I will say though, like the most fun thing I've had with Marvel lately is the what if show on Disney plus like that. It's just so much fun because they really go oh, all out wow, with some it. that stuff.
2: Yeah. People have loved it, but yeah. I mean, I hope the Eternals is better because I think Chloe Zhao deserves as much worldwide praise as she can get. And One thing from the Eternals trailer, I wasn't a huge fan of the fact we don't know who the bad guys are. Like, we know the deviance, but we didn't really get a lot from it. Yeah. Um, But it looked gorgeous. It looked stunning. Like, Chloe Zhao was in her element, and you could tell a skilled director is making this movie. That made me most excited for that movie. But Shang-Chi, in credit to you, Mike, is getting good reviews. Everyone who's seen it thus far has loved it.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to see that one in a couple of weeks. And let's go to the musical realm. as well, Because musical movies are making a comeback after the Hamilton release on Disney Plus during the pandemic. In the Heights was well-received. We got two coming here in the fall. Dear Evan Hansen
2: and West Side Story. Which one do you think will do better? I think it depends what you're looking for. I think that if you're looking for, in terms of a cultural impact maybe word of mouth spreading around, I think it's going to be Dear Evan Hansen. If you're thinking about award prestige and maybe the, uh, the fanfare from uh, the Golden Globes and the Oscars, I think you're going to look at West Side Story. Um, West Side Story is directed by Steven Spielberg. He gets nominated for an Oscar if he puts out a movie. It just seems like fact. And it's coming out right around December, which is more around award season. So I think that's why it's going to get more of that prestige recognition. But Dear Evan Hansen, Mike, have you seen the play? Do you know anything about the play? I have not seen the play. My, my mom and sister have seen it. See, everyone who's seen the play, I'm sure they loved it. People love this play. It's insane. They love Ben Platt, who's now playing in this movie, playing the same character. He's coming back. Yeah. So it's crazy. Like, I think this movie is going to have a ton of word of mouth success. Um, and I, I, I'm more excited to see it as well, because I don't know the story super well. West Side Story, you're remaking an all-time classic. It's going to really trend toward an older audience. Dear Evan Hansen has a chance to spread across a much bigger domain in terms of potential viewers.
0: For sure. I think excited to see how that goes. Let's go to some of the October fair now, some of the big ones here. The Sopranos prequel movie, Many Saints in Newark. I know this when the trailer
2: dropped, Twitter was going crazy about this movie. Are you excited for this? I'm excited for it. Um, I admit I have not seen The Sopranos, so... Hold that against me. I plan on watching it someday. I'm watching The Wire right now. I'm getting to all these old HBO shows. Give me a second. But as working at Barstool, when this trailer dropped, the next day, this is all anyone talked about. Glennie Balls was obsessed with this movie. <laughs> Everyone was talking about this movie. And to be fair, it looks great. And to have Michael uh, Michael Gandolfini playing Tony Soprano, the younger version, like that's just cool. And this cast has a lot of recognizable faces. Like I think this movie is going to be good. It's going to be well-made. Though, do you know what other movies the director Alan Taylor has made? I do not offhand. Terminator Genesis and Thor: Dark World were the past two big motion pictures he made. Oof, not great, not great. But Alan Taylor has directed Game of Thrones. He's directed episodes of Deadwood. He directed episodes of Mad Men. And he directed episodes of The Sopranos. So he has that television pre- television prestige. Can he bring it into movie form? This is probably the best opportunity for him.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is more up his alley than than feel like going into like an action movie like like Terminator Genesis or Thor, or going to Marvel on with Thor. I feel like this is more up his speed.
2: Yeah, I would. I I hope so. I hope this movie is good because people with, from The Sopranos they love the show. I heard it's phenomenal. Believe it. They didn't like the ending to it. So now this is kind of a chance to have a last experience within the Sopranos universe will be this movie and the telling of the main titular character. It's a cool opportunity for the fans of the show.
0: Absolutely. Let's go also on to one we've talked about for two years in this podcast. Going we back to Pop Culture Party 1 in 2019 when we did it in the Iona studio with Sam DeRosa. Like, no yeah. time to die. The James Bond movie here, we've been delayed, as you said, five times. It's finally, it should finally hit the theaters here. So. Do you think all of this delay is going to basically amp the hype up? We're going to be more disappointed. We waited this long.
2: I don't think we'll be disappointed because I really do have faith. This movie is going to be good, Um, though. It's been six years, like yeah. it's been six years since this franchise has put out a movie. It's nuts. And there's, there's not like, there's like controversy quote unquote around this because Daniel Craig, like doesn't love playing bond. This is his last time playing bond. Who's going to play the next James Bond is the delaying of this movie delaying the search for who's going to be the next bond there's so many questions you can kind of go with it in terms of this movie being delayed and it was supposed to come out march 2020 and it's just now coming out now it is from what i've read theaters only which is one of the few movies to have a theaters only theaters only release so it's probably gonna hurt his box office a little bit because like i just read in australia no movie can be played in theaters until like november or something like that it's crazy like this is an article i just read so it's going to hurt like the international box office, but this movie is going to be a success. I think it's going to be good. I think they should do a, like a double screen to show Spectre before it, because who's going to remember what happened in the movie six years ago. It's a tall task for fans to stay engaged with the franchise. Even this beloved when there's a six year gap between movies, especially when franchises like Marvel and DC are putting out two to three movies a year and satiating their fans like hunger. James Bond has been six years going to be hard to see hard to gauge people's interests
0: yeah you're saying james bond is having a layoff for six years imagine all those Avatar sequels
2: about 15 years after the first one comes <laughs> out you're absolutely right you're absolutely right like it's crazy how are you going to get people reengaged with something that they haven't seen in such a long time now James Bond's a much more iconic name than Avatar, but both I think share a share a problem just on different scopes. That's I mean, a great point.
0: I mean Avatar was like is still the highest grossing movie of all time. Like it was iconic, but then it kept getting delayed because technology, I don't have enough technology, and now we're at COVID issues. I mean, I they were talking about I think like twenty fifteen was the original target. Now we're talking about like seven, eight years after that for the next one.
2: Yeah, it's bad. Again, my I loved Avatar when I first saw it. The opinions have gone down a little bit over time. I still think it's an entertaining movie, and it was scientifically groundbreaking in terms of movie technology, like you said. But Cameron, has he has a mind of its own. He's going to have his world. He's going to have his world, and everyone's going to kind of revolve around it. But... Listen, he's got Pandora World at Disney, right? Now I just got to hope that that excitement transports to the movies.
0: Yeah, for me, it's got kind of to the point where I'm like, okay, wake me up when it's actually in the theater. Because I, don't, I will not believe it actually exists until yeah. it actually gets there.
2: I'll believe it when the feature presentation rolls on the on the movie theater screen. For sure. Let's go now. I think the movie,
0: I think, is number one with a bullet on your list and mine for the fall here, Dune. And, I mean, this is one where I'm excited to see. Is The trailer was jaw-dropping when I saw it. And, like... Remember last year we did the Halloween pop culture party. We did Mando from here. I feel like this year, Halloween pop culture party has to be the Dune review.
2: Oh my God. I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh, Mike, I am so excited for this movie. I just started the audiobook for it, too. Yeah. So I'm going to be able to finish that book and then I'm going to be able to go into the movie knowing what's going to happen. I am beyond excited for this movie. The cast of this movie is insane. It looks beautiful. The trailer was gorgeous. The score was incredible. I i've already asked my girlfriend if we can go midnight to this like opening weekend i was like we're putting this in the calendar we're going yeah and it's going like it's it is a thing that's happening in our lives so i again beyond beyond excited i i really say i combining this this is a star wars meets game of thrones like political stuff with science fiction with like the beauty of arrival and blade runner 2049 i cannot wait for this movie and how good it's going to be i have the utmost faith in the world, this is going to be incredible. And I really have no wavering in that confidence. Are you planning to get to an IMAX for this? I am planning on probably going to the Alamo draft house if possible for this. So that's probably what I'm planning for. I feel
0: like this one, like if you can get to the IMAX, like seeing it on the, on the IMAX screen, you make it so much better.
2: Oh, I agree with you again. I, if there's a movie I'm going to see this year, more than once in theaters, this might be it. So IMAX might be in the future, but um, I, I, And listen, the, Denise Villeneuve is being like, go see this movie in theaters. Do not watch it at home because you won't have the same experience. And I believe him tenfold. Like the scope of this movie is not meant to be viewed on anything less than a giant, giant screen. Okay, let's go on to some other ones here. Also, did you hear it's going to be a trilogy now or he wants to make it a trilogy? I heard it was a sequel. I know it was three, third a one. Uh, An article that was on Screen Rant yesterday, the day they were recording yesterday, uh, said that he wants to make it a trilogy with the sequel book of Dune uh, to make it a trilogy because there is a direct sequel to Dune. And there's tons of other books that not only Frank Herbert wrote, but his son wrote where there's tons of lore that you could pull into a trilogy and fill it out. Um, I don't know all the lore of Dune because what I've heard is very, very complicated. But now the plan is possibly a trilogy. It is a sequel confirmed, but now Phil new wants to make a trilogy.
0: I, that would be exciting. I'm I'm definitely in for this if it's, if the first one lives up to the hype. Oh, I'm so excited! All right, let's go on to now some of the like sort of sequel reboot trilogy portion of the uh, rundown here. Ghostbusters Afterlife. I forgot this thing was actually a thing. It's coming out. Apparently, it's this. From what we've got, it's more mostly like kid Ghostbusters. I'm like, are you waiting around on this? I'm in on this, Mike.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, you sound more skeptical than me. The last trailer for this movie yeah. kicked ass. Yeah. it was so good. Yeah. It, it seems like a dark tone, but it's blending that nostalgia line really, really well. I love the fact that the cameos in this movie don't seem to be just for fanfare, but seem to be actually supplying the story. And uh, this trailer knocked me out of the park. I think it came out two or three weeks ago. Yeah. It, it was falling out of my chair. i was very, very excited for this movie now.
0: I don't know. I'm going to the scar from the 2016 Ghostbusters, which just really fell
2: flat. I don't count that one. We just... We <laughs> Get rid of it. Get rid of whatever that was. It was bad. Yeah. It's like Oceans 8. You just you don't count that within the franchise.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly fair. Although I am curious to see like how much Murray actually cares about this one. I know it's 16, he hated the script basically said, I'm in here's a cameo, so you can kill me in five minutes.
2: Again, I, I think we'll see how this goes. I think this movie I, I really I'm genuinely excited for it because the vibe of the trailer was really good. It looked like it was incredibly well made. And uh, I I think that. One thing from the trailer too is there's going to be a ton of ghosts. Yep. They showed a ton of ghosts in the yep. trailer, and ghosts from the first movie as well. If you paid close attention, so I think this movie is going to be a wonderful blend of nostalgia but also originality, and I'm excited for that.
0: Yeah, I'm also on the Murray train Like I just rewatched Groundhog Day the first time about like ten years recently. That was fun.
2: Yeah, I mean Groundhog Day is, is set the standard for that genre, reliving the same day. So. Yeah. I, I think Bill Murray is maybe being a little snide with his comments about this script and stuff because yeah. I think I think from what we've seen this far, it's all positive things.
0: For sure. Let's go to the one you're hyped about here, Top Gun Maverick. Your thoughts on this
2: one? Listen, Top Gun Maverick, it's the opposite of Ghostbusters Afterlife. I have fallen off on Top Gun Maverick because we haven't seen nothing new in, like, months. Yeah. I forgot this movie was coming out until you put it on the sheet for me to prep for And again, I will rewatch the trailer. The trailer was dope. The sound, the sound was incredible. The jet engines flying, the whole entire thing of Tom Cruise just being a badass. We love it. But like, we haven't seen anything new. We don't know what to be excited for anymore. We got that first trailer and then it's just been nothing since.
0: Yeah. You think there's something coming soon? I figure maybe around Labor Day you get something.
2: Yeah. I, I think there has to be something new coming. And to be fair, with all the new movies coming out in, in late September and October, we might get a ton of new trailers dropped when these new movies come out too. It might be a floodgate of cinema and previews and stuff. Yeah, speaking of trailers, we had a couple of new ones dropped, like basically a day or two
0: before recording here, including the Matrix Four. We finally got a title for it, Matrix resurrections, That trailer is dropped. I know you're a big Keanu guy from the John Wick franchise. Is this got you excited at all?
2: I'm very excited for this movie, Matrix Resurrection, staying with the R theme for the sequels. Um, Not a ton is known about this movie. Now, the trailer dropped, but it didn't drop publicly, right? It only dropped at Cinecon. I think so, yeah. Cinemacon. So there are rumors of what was in the trailer. Um, You can go and find them if you want. If you want to be somewhat spoiled, they're They aren't really much in terms of what was shown. But it definitely sets a precedent for what this movie is going to be about in in the big scheme of things. So in terms of a problem that Neo is dealing with. Um, But I'm excited for this movie. Keanu Reeves is is on a renaissance this movie put him on the map for the majority of America and movie go- and moviegoers in general with the first Matrix. Now he's a chance to kind of cap off his renaissance with a sequel that is worthy to the original, which is a tough task to accomplish.
0: I remember when the date on this was originally announced, they originally had this. I think John Wick four coming out the same day, and that would have basically broken the Matrix. That Keanu it would be on two, two different
2: blockbusters. Right, that would have <laughs> been incredible—a double feature Keanu uh, at the movie theater with two new movies. That would have been that would have been quite an afternoon. Absolutely. And the last one, the
0: new trailer here, the one that sort of broke the internet on like Monday night compared to when we're recording on Wednesday night here. So the Spider Man No Way Home trailer finally dropped. It's been teased for months. We did not get much new stuff in terms of casting. Like we obviously saw Albert Molina back as Doc Ock, but like we could the we'll be able to plot of this movie. I know you were not a big fan of this
2: trailer. I I'm not. And I I'm in the minority. I think this movie is going away from what made the first two Holland Spider-Man movies so good. And I think it's really steeping into what made the Toby Maguire Spider-Man three movie troublesome where they're trying to fit so much into one movie, all these bad guys and characters that you want to see all at once. And then it's just the story is not as coherent as you want it to be. And it doesn't have the same magic. I'm really worried that's going to happen. Now Marvel has fit so many more things into movies than I could expect and still made entertaining products. But just because something is entertaining doesn't mean it's a good movie. There's a there's a there's a difference there, and you can call me a snob, but sometimes I try and look for both. So I'm worried with this trailer. It was fanfare galore. The fans got exactly what you wanted, and that is good. I'm happy for you, but I am nervous for this trailer. I am nervous that they are straying away from from what made Spider Man the other Spider Man movie great, and what made Tom Holland great as Spider Man. I'm scared.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want to reference here. I mean, you had, like, I saw a tweet you put out about this thing when we referenced how the multiverse is basically created on the factory. I'm going to pull up your, your Twitter here so I can full, get the exact quote sure. con- context of the tweet here. Because this, I thought this is actually very interesting, the way you put this here. And give me a second here. I'm scrolling down your feed. And you got a lot of fun stuff here. But I was... Just a lot of venting about the Red Sox, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of Red Sox venting here behind Vazquez, so on, so forth. But I can't think... Yeah, somewhere in the Bachelorette feed, but like I think I lost the thread here. Your basic point was, hey, like, we're having the multiverse creed because Spider-Man's having identity crisis?
2: Yeah, it's a high school boy who doesn't know what he wants to be and suddenly wants to change who he is, and that's going to lead to the multiverse because, you know... It's not like it could have been a really cool reveal or something like that. I don't know. I thought that was a childish way to introduce something that is so huge and so massive to the entire Marvel cinematic universe, not just this phase, but phases that are going to happen after the fact. So I don't know. I Listen, Marvel can convince me wrong. I love the first two Spider movies. Genuinely, they are two of my favorite Marvel movies as a whole. So I, I hope that they can prove me wrong, but I am skeptical going in. I also don't love the character Doctor Strange, and he's going to be in this movie a big time. He's the secondary character, if you will. So, yeah, yeah he's still I, don't know.
0: You still in that RDJ slot of like being like the, the older mentor to Peter Parker, basically.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe Doctor Strange should have a good individual movie first before you know he's being a mentor to, to Spider Man. I don't know. Like the first Doctor Strange movie wasn't great, and now he's playing a big part. I'm skeptical, Mike. I'm skeptical. Call me skeptical. I am not going to just automatically think a Marvel movie is going to be good.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to also, for a second here, toss up the spoiler warning because it in turns into the multiverse comment here. For those of you who have not seen Loki, I mean, the show does sort of get into, at the end of it, like create, potential creation of the multiverse. So it is interesting that, that like this Loki show does one thing, and Spider Man is saying, "Oh no, it's happened because Tom Holland's Peter Parker's wants to have a normal life, and not everybody knows he's Spider Man." So I feel like that's a weird sort of like confusing thing there.
2: Yeah, I think they're going to tie the two in the the two in somehow, which is probably the smart thing to do, uh, which would take away my argument of uh, basically Tom Holland Spider Man Peter Parker having an identity crisis leading to the multiverse. It would take away my argument. But the thing is it this goes back to stem to the fact that I shouldn't need to do homework on three other Marvel shows in order to understand this movie and to understand the connection that they're gonna be drawing together. Yeah, that's I think. that's another gripe I have with Marvel and just entertainment industry as a whole. Yeah, I think, so, yeah, I think at for, least that argument.
0: I think for me, the arg I think the way they're doing it is like saying like, Oh, like, okay, you don't need to know what happened with this because like you can just blame Peter Parker for the multiverse if you don't watch Loki, whereas you guys will say, Oh, this is what actually
2: happened. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't think Marvel's going to, I don't think Marvel's going to try and give you an either or option in terms of understanding the story they're trying to tell. I think they're going to tie the two directly in together and they're going to give some exposition for Loki during the movie. I'd be willing to bet when the, if that reveal happens. But the thing is, if you watch Loki, then you'll understand you'll have a better time. But again, you have to do homework in order to fully appreciate something and I don't love that. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. And obviously that's all the ones I had. Anything else that you have coming up here, you're excited about over the next couple of months.
2: I'll just rattle off. I just I generated a quick list. Again, we're gonna go into the month of October, which is going to be incredible, Michael. Incredible. Uh, we're gonna start off. We'll start off with uh, October 15th. We have Halloween Kills returns. That's very exciting uh before that we have malignant which comes out in september a new james wan horror movie i'm excited about because it's not in the conjuring universe it's something new good for james wan getting out of there we have the last duel coming out on october 15th uh jodie cromer is on her up and up after free guy then we got ridley scott bringing back ben affleck and matt damon wonderful we got the french dispatch which a cast the size of a country itself is in it's a wes anderson movie so it's a must-see Last Night in Soho with Edgar Wright back back behind the directing, uh, back directing, and Anna Taylor-Joy riding her Queen's Gambit high, see if she could bring that to the silver screen. And then we have Antlers at the end of October, which is a horror movie it's directed by Scott Cooper, who I really like and has made some really underrated movies like Out of the Furnace and Hostiles. So tons of things are coming out on October, Mike. I cannot wait for the month of October when I have no time to watch movies because I'll be working football for Barstool Sports, but I'm going to find time as much as I can because the movie schedule in October is incredible.
0: Hey, that's where HBO Max is in handy for you.
2: That's true. Again, not every movie is coming out on HBO Max. So we're, I'm going to have to try and find time. There might be like work all day, Saturday, college football, go to movie theater Saturday night, and then return to NFL football on Sunday. And, then somehow, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be bonkers, but I'm very excited for the month of October.
0: Absolutely. And for me, I'm trying to sort of run through, I think, my big summer rewatch for like just something old. Like, have you ever been a Twin Peaks guy?
2: Have you ever heard of that show? I watched the first season, liked it a lot, got to the second season, did not like it at all, and did not finish it yeah there's there's some interesting stuff
0: in there and this i mean obviously it like i'm you know what you're talking about here like once they solve Laura palmer's merv and the storyline goes kind of goes really out of whack for all sorts of things yeah it goes, yeah, it goes crazy yeah it does but so like, i
2: heard the showtime sequel to it like the newer you would uh, love it was
0: incredible you would love it i'm, I'm four episodes into this into the sequel i think it's so right. entertaining and they do so many abstract things that like they do it's not your typical like oh here's what's happening with x y and z they give you this whole weird side of experimental story to follow a lot of fun i also recommend if you do ever go down that route watch the movie the twin peaks firewalk with me that ties in very tightly to the uh spinoff show i i
2: have not seen that i did not know it was a thing but again i need to finish do I need to finish Twin Peaks? I really like the first season, but the second season is just bad. Like I, I don't know if it's bad. I just, it's just well, not comparable to the first season I, at all.
0: I think if you're going to get into the Showtime one, you need to finish it because there is a key plot point there that will help that will, you will be not understand if you don't get through it.
2: All right. Well, maybe, maybe that's after the wire. But maybe, after the wire was probably going to be Succession. I don't know. Maybe after. Maybe I, fo- I got, may- I got work with these shows. Maybe after football season. Yeah, maybe after football season when I could take a nap.
0: All right, John, thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll be on social media. Keep up with some of the stuff you're up to.
2: You can follow me on Twitter at jstanko99, or you could go to stankosstance.com where I write movie reviews and all all stuff, movies, random sports, et cetera, et cetera.
0: All right, John, thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you having me. All right, that will do for this week's show. Second show, excuse me. I want to thank my guest, Chris Otto, for coming on to pre the U.S. Open next week. it be a fun tournament down in Flushing, Valley. I'm excited to see what happens in the next two weeks. I also want to thank John Stanko for copping on the line to do the fall movie preview list. Summer will be wrap up as well as we get ready to gear up for some fall movies. A lot of fun stuff coming out in the next couple of months. We want to get stuff like this podcast, including my look at the Bad Batch finale. I mentioned it during the Star Wars podcast. I had some thoughts on there about what went wrong with the season, how I could fix it, stuff like that. Check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Starring Your Favorite Podcast platforms, You'll find all episodes there. Feel free to hear your feedback and star rings will help out with the podcast even better going forward. Please do that. A simple review, simple starring will make a big difference going forward. You'll check out the YouTube page. Mike Vill is on YouTube. My chats with John and Chris Otto are going to be up on the YouTube page in just a minute. So as soon as you finish the episode, you can check that out as well. So, follow me on Twitter at MPhillips331. That's M P H I L I P S 331. And that will do it for this week's episode of the podcast. Coming up next week, Fantasy Football Week. We're doing our fantasy football preview with John Daigle, of NBC Sports Edge, NFL Arms with Joe Dalizio, and more. Until then, have a better week than our Orioles fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.